Welcome, this is Mind the Shift, and I am Anders Bolling. Where do we come from? Independent researchers are putting uh, together a puzzle that is beginning to reveal a vastly different history than the one we're told in school, especially when it comes to how far back in time civilization actually goes. That our future is unwritten is obvious, but the fact is that also our past is to a large extent unwritten or miswritten, which is actually a bit shocking when you think about it. One of these independent researchers is Brian Forrester. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you, Anders. It's a pleasure. Okay, so let's see if I, I get your uh, bio right here. I'm mean, just briefly going to going to say it here. I think it, uh, I mean, you were born in the United States, but you grew up in Western Canada where you developed a fascination for uh, native art and became a sculptor. That's correct, right? That's right. Yeah. And then your interest in native culture brought you to first to Hawaii and then to Peru where you, where you live now. And you've done many things in your life, of course, but and not all have to do with what you're famous or known for now. But is it fair to say that, that a golden thread, so to speak, has been a search for the source of human culture and civilization. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, correct and succinct. I've um, I've simply followed my my passions through life, and it's led me to travel the world and live in different places. And um, yeah, visiting Peru several times finally drew me to buy a one way ticket and and move here. So I've been here ever for about 13 years now yeah and you've been to how many 90 countries or something like that i think about 100 now 100 okay how many are, are there 200 or, or something something like that so you're getting there okay and you have also written many books of course i think a, a little bit over 20 books now about uh, 37 how many 37 oh 37 oh i, I i've only read one <laughs> Is oh well, that's better than none. <laughs> better than none. This is called Aft Aftershock, the ancient cataclysm that erased human history. And we're going to delve into that. Uh, so 37 books uh, about megalithic sites and hidden history uh, of different sorts. And you organize tours to megalithic sites. I think you visit Egypt at least once a year. Yeah, once a year. And then we had three major tours of Peru and Bolivia. Uh, and... Previously, we've been to Lebanon and um, Turkey and other locations that have fascinating megalithic locations. Okay, so also Turkey, Gobekli Tepe, I, I assume. Yeah, among other locations. Okay. Um, and, and you're also an avid YouTuber, as many know, and you where you publish videos from said sites. Uh, and I understand you also cooperate with other you know, um, independent researchers such as Graham Hancock, Robert Schock, and also perhaps Nassim Haramein. Is that is that right? Yeah, and Andrew Collins, who I noticed you've had on your, your show. Exactly. And, uh, yes, I had yeah, Andrew on the show. And, and Michael Tellinger and quite a few, Christopher Dunn, quite a few others. Yeah, yeah, I had Tellinger on the show as well. So yeah, this is this is amazing. And I think you're doing a great job. It's, it's really important. Um, Thank you. Uh, I just noticed the, uh, yesterday I was listening to uh, a Gaia show with Nassim Haramein, and he he was talking about the DNA analysis of these um, 
uh, elongated skulls, which made me realize that, ah, oh, shit. So, so they probably co- cooperate, Brian and, and Nassim there. Right. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> when I have tried now to unwrap your research, which is big, <laughs> uh, I have um, found three main points just for the, for the audience here to, to understand what you're, what you're doing. And you can correct me if I'm missing something here. But point number one being that there is evidence of human civilization much older than what we've been told. Number two, there is evidence that these civilizations perished in an enormous cataclysm. And point three being that there is evidence that beings that were not homo sapiens and that may have been survivors or may not have been survivors, but still from the cataclysm, coexisted with humans as late as a couple of thousand years ago. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, very much so. Okay, excellent. So let's let's begin here with with um, the evidence of advanced civilizations that perished. Uh, I, I understand that Peru and Egypt are the two uh, core countries that that you study here. Uh, would you say so? Yeah, I would. I would say I've been, I've been to Egypt nine times, and of course I live in Peru, so I've been to all of the major and even most of the minor archaeological sites in Peru and also Bolivia, because the two, Peru and Bolivia, are interlinked because during the time of the Inca, they were the same civilization, the same country, more or less. Yeah. So what is it? I mean, you you study these megalithic structures made basically built out of enormous stone blocks and and they, they, they are in several locations around the world, Peru and, and Bolivia, as you say, and Egypt have some of the most spectacular ones and the most famous ones being the, the pyramids, of course, in Giza, in Egypt. So mm-hmm. what is it, to, to, to just briefly understand what we're looking at here, what is it that in these megalithic structures that tell us that they can't have been erected when mainstream archaeologists and scientists say they have? Well, the, uh, the commonality between <clears throat> dynastic Egypt and uh, Peru is that um, during the time of the Inca is that both had at best bronze tools and bronze is not useful if you're trying to cut hard stones such as granite and basalt. So that, that by itself tells you that the Inca and the dynastic people were not capable of constructing these ancient uh, locations of very, very large blocks that fit incredibly precisely together without any kind of filler or mortar or cement or anything of that nature. So that, you know, that in a nutshell tells you that somebody else was there previously and had advanced technology of some kind, either similar to, or maybe, maybe even more advanced than what we have today. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks really advanced and it looks impressive, but I mean, to a layman, it might not be that impressive. Mean, if you don't understand what you're looking for, I mean, a big stone structure from the 1500s, say, and a big stone structure from way back, thousands of years back, may look just about the same to a layman. So is, it the, is the difference between, I mean, if you compare, for instance, a, a very magnificent, impressive building from later times, say the Colosseum in Rome or big cathedrals, medieval cathedrals. Is it this, the size of the stone blocks that is the difference or what's, what's, the, what's the main difference here? Well, in a lot of cases, it's the size of the blocks, but also the precision of the fit 
and the fact that they utilize very hard stone in almost all cases, where something like a cathedral, as far as I know, tended to be made up of limestone, which is a very soft material. So limestone is something that you can fashion with very hardened bronze or um, iron or steel tools, but iron and steel were not uh, something that the dynastic Egyptians nor the Inca had. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one thing you might ponder then. I mean, of course, you don't have the answer, but you might have guesses. I mean, why did they build, construct these large buildings in hard stone, big stone blocks? It wouldn't be, this is perhaps a bit uh, chronocentric or whatever the word is, but it seems to be a little bit smarter to use something like cement and uh, bricks and mortar because that's more, I mean, easier to build buildings like that than, than, than doing, doing it like this. Have you pondered this? Yeah, it's a lot easier to do that. And of course, when the Spanish uh, arrived in Peru, they brought with them the technology of how to create concrete. And so they utilized that heavily in their churches and other buildings uh, because they were able to build things very rapidly. Uh, they simply recycled the Inca and older stone works that they found. So the, the, uh, the Spanish colonial construction is very crude compared to the megalithic work and also is very vulnerable to earthquakes. So in 1950, there was a major earthquake that hit the city of Cusco and destroyed a lot of the colonial Spanish construction, but didn't do anything to the megalithic works that were there, on oh. top of which the, the Spanish did a lot of construction. Like uh, Machu Picchu, for, for instance, was never yeah, exactly. affected. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah. I mean, would we even today, or first question would be perhaps, or next question would be perhaps, what do the mainstream scientists say about this when, when, when this is pointed out that, I mean, they didn't have the kind of tools that would be required to, to cut these uh, granite stone blocks and, and build, build like that. So what do, how do they explain that this was done anyway? For instance, when it comes to the, the, the Great Pyramid in, in Giza. Well, they simply don't. They, they still insist that the work was done by the dynastic Egyptians or the Inca utilizing hardened bronze tools. But this has been proven over and over again to not, to not be possible. I mean, there are a number of videos on YouTube that show somebody trying to cut a granite block with a, a hardened bronze saw of some kind using quartz sand and um, it's incredibly inefficient. They, they're able to penetrate the stone by maybe a few millimeters or maybe maximum a centimeter in the course of, a, of an eight hour day. Oh. And that's, you know, so there's no way that that, that was the technology utilized. No, because how long would that take? I mean, to build, to build, how many blocks are there in the Great Pyramid? 2.3 million or something? Yeah. So that would take, what, thousands of years to build a pyramid? Probably. That? method probably yeah. okay so would we even be able to today build a structure like the great pyramid with the, with the technology that is available to us today it is possible but it would be incredibly time consuming and incredibly expensive and uh, there's no modern day reason to build such a structure anyway uh, you know modern buildings actually are becoming 
less and less durable. Yeah. Um, you know, we've gone from the 19th century where a lot of, of work was done in stone. Now we use um, steel, aluminum, and glass more than anything else, and that makes the uh, the structure, you know, would last possibly 50 years or something like that before it would start to show major wear and tear. So it is possible, but it's not practical. Mm. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, if there were to be a cataclysm soon, this <laughs> civilization wouldn't leave any traces like, like, like these ones did, probably. Yes. Well, simply, yeah, simply rubble would be left behind. And there have been, um, <clears throat> there have been videos that have been made about what, what would happen to, say, New York if it was abandoned, like destroyed and abandoned. And nature would very rapidly take, you know, take over the location. Yeah. Okay, so um, what is the uh, what are your theories about uh, who were there? Or here's a question also. I mean, about what what actually when this mainstream narrative was was set in stone, so to speak, was there initially some kind of intellectual battle among scientists and archaeologists uh, as to uh how all these uh, structures were when when western scientists began investigating for instance the giza plateau which was in the i guess the 18th and 19th centuries was there in, mm -hmm. initially an, uh, some kind of intellectual battle where some where one group one camp thought that they might have been older than the than the dynastic egypt than dynastic egypt and the, another camp was more conservative so to speak and that was the one that that prevailed do you know about this yeah, I think the only one that we can really uh, look at would be Flinders Petrie, who was a, an English archaeologist. And he found, uh, he was examining such things as tube drill holes in very hard material like granite. And he, uh, he was actually able to get some of the cores out of, the, out of, out of the, the tube drill holes. And they're in his museum at the University um, of, of London in England, so he was, he was examining those and starting to question how it would be possible for the dynastic Egyptians to be able to um, produce something like that. Because again, it's a very hard uh, type of stone. And um, if you only have bronze as a material, that can't be responsible. And then later studies have been done by Christopher Dunn, who is an American machinist. Um, and he was able to figure out, he and others, that the feed rate, which is the penetration rate of the tool, the drill in this case, entering the stone would be about 300 times more efficient than what we have today in terms of modern diamond embedded uh, drills. Hmm. So we're talking about technology beyond our present, uh, our present day capacity. That's really impressive. And there are also, Aside from the, the pyramids themselves, there are artifacts uh, uh, found in, in, for instance, in, in uh, tunnels underneath Giza, uh, these big, big stone boxes that you have uh, been talking a lot about, for instance, and also vases that seem to have been, I mean, they're, they're made from very hard stone, hard rock, and it's, uh, they, they seem to have been made by way of, with the help of, of lathes. Uh, is that the word? The um, actually even more complex than that because um, a number like they found it was in the area of the Step Pyramid at um, 
Saqqara that they found a cache or a bunch of these, between 30,000 and 40,000 of them, um, underneath the step pyramid, as if they were being hidden away on purpose. And yeah, they're, most of them are made of very hard stone. Some of them actually have protuberances coming out from uh, the sides, and those would not be possible to uh, create on a lathe because, of course, you'd, you'd snap them off if you were turning turning them at high speed. So oh, yeah, it's yeah. more likely that there would be something like what's called a CNC machine, which is a computer controlled cutting device that would go in and be able to, you know, computer control to, to do that kind of precise work. We also see the tool marks um, left behind. And it's just the sheer volume of the number of them that were found that is so amazing. They're probably 50 on display in the Cairo Museum, but they found, as I said, between 30,000 and 40,000 of them. Hmm. So we would today just barely be able to, to, to make something similar. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It would be very, very advanced computer control technology to be able to do that. Wow. And these stone boxes, they're like, I mean, the mainstream tells, tells people there, I mean, the guides who are Taking tourists there, they tell them that these are sarcophagi and and they were for bury the burial to bury uh, kings or rich people or whatever. <laughs> but but you don't Actually, really believe for, that. No, for they say they were made to uh, for burial places for Apis bulls, who were a sacred type of bull to the dynastic people. But still, they can't explain how the stone. You know, some of these boxes are up to 100 tons the the lid and the box are always made out of the same piece of stone so they don't even try to bother to explain how the stone was quarried um, either in Aswan which is in southern Egypt or in the from the eastern desert and then transported across the desert or up from the south to the Giza area and then how they were put into these tunnels uh, how, how you know how they were made so precisely because they're almost hermetically sealed. Uh, mm. They fit almost perfectly uh, together. So they don't even bother to try to um, attempt to answer those questions or they, they don't even question. They simply say, this is the way we believe it was done. And if you don't believe them, then you know, you're instantly dismissed. But that's why I come from a multidisciplinary background. That's why I take geologists and engineers and people like that with me to see these in person. Yeah. And none of them have been able to, none of them believes for a second that this was done using dynastic Egyptian technology. It had to be much, much older and much more advanced. It seems as if the, the mainstreams, the, the <laughs> reasoning among the mainstream people is that it must have been the, the dynastic Egyptians because it's impossible that that it was something different it's i mean it's just it's a, it's a circle reasoning mm -hmm. it, i mean they don't know how they did it but the, it must have been them because there were none here before period yeah there, there's exactly there's basically nobody there before yeah according according to their timeline um yeah. but of course there is evidence that that's not the case at all but the evidence that we look at is staring you in the face and telling you you know this was not done by the culture that Egyptologists state had to have done it because mm. there was no sophisticated society, according to them, prior to that time. And the dynastic dynastic Egyptians themselves, they never 
claimed that they built these things, built these, these things? Well, it's highly unlikely. There's a lot of growing evidence that uh, Khufu and Khafre, you know, who were supposedly responsible for the construction of the two of the largest pyramids, that they were actually responsible for doing things such as repairing the Sphinx. Uh, there is no evidence that either of them created the Sphinx at all, but there mm -hmm. is growing evidence that uh, hieroglyphics state that they were responsible for doing repair work and digging the Sphinx out from the sand. There's absolutely no evidence at all that either of them were responsible for the construction of the Great Pyramids because there are no hieroglyphics that describe the building of the Great Pyramids, which no. is quite bizarre since yeah, it's, it's one of the greatest technological that, that, that would be the first thing history. to document, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah, exactly. Like this. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, fascinating. And and it's 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 been said that it's a grave, but it, man, there there's no there's no evidence that, that anybody was was actually buried there. Is there? No, because the the king the so-called king's chamber does have a box in it, which is human size, but there's no evidence uh, that anybody was ever buried in that box. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, again, the, the basic timeline is that. Khufu built or had the Great Pyramid built in 20 to 25 years, but that would mean that every stone, you'd have to be able to cut, move, and set into place one of these multi-ton blocks every two minutes. Every two minutes, one block weighing, what, 50 tons? Well, from 20 to 80 tons. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, it's just obvious that that didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen right. that way. Okay. Right. So, so going... Uh, over to Peru, I think in Peru, uh, these old, these megalithic structures that you find there, they, they display uh, other features that, that are even more fantastical when it comes to the technology that was used. You could see that in Egypt, as far as I understand your teachings, your videos and your books here, that they, you, you, can, you can envisage that, that they used very advanced tools, instruments mm -hmm. to construct these things. But in Peru in some place, I think it's in Puma Punku, or that's Bolivia, I guess. Uh, anyway, mm -hmm. th it it's looks like, in some place, it looks like as if the people who build these structures, built these structures, had a technology to kind of soften stone, make it softer uh, during a period when they constructed it, and then, then it was hardened again naturally after this. In what way is, of course, very difficult to understand, but uh, maybe using some kind of sound technology, frequency technology. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, in Egypt, we see definite evidence of machining because we see the machine marks. We see yeah. saw marks. We see drill holes, uh, you know, and not like a few. We see multiple exam examples in different locations of this repeating technology in one case at a site called Abu Sir that almost nobody goes to, uh, there's evidence of uh, a circular saw that was used to cut stone that was eight meters in diameter and possibly four or five millimeters thick, which is impossible. Mm. But in Peru, the difference is we don't see much in the way of machine marks at all. And uh, it looks like it was a very, even more advanced technology that was used not related to how Egypt was constructed. And um, <clears throat> it does look like whoever was able to do this was able to temporarily alter uh, 
altered the state of matter that they were able to make stone into almost like a marshmallow state and then transport it into place. And then it would very, like, very rapidly uh, reset. Uh, and that's probably why we find that there are these bulging marks in some of the ancient stone walls that they mm. protrude outwards. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah, in many ways, Peru and also Puma Punku, which shows uh, almost perfectly laser flat surfaces, no evidence of sand, uh, tool marks or sanding marks or anything like that, that even more advanced uh, civilizations were involved in Peru and Bolivia than in Egypt. Egypt, it's a sense of scale because you have massive things such as the Great Pyramid, but in Peru, uh, it's more megalithic walls, which um, are up to maybe eight meters, seven to eight meters high, but it's the, uh, also there are no straight lines in Peru. Everything uh, fits together, like all the stones interlock and uh, there's no common pattern in terms of a 90 degree angle going into the stone. Quite often it's different angles that go in. That would help to interlock it. But uh, in that way, Peru and Bolivia are probably even more enigmatic than Egypt is. Yeah, yeah. It really looks like, as you say, as those stones were, were transformed into some kind of marshmallows and then, and then um, yeah, congealed there in, in place. Maybe if you, mm -hmm. have, if you can send me some pictures, I might be able to insert in the video uh, some photos of, of this, which mm -hmm. would be would be great for the for the viewers i think on youtube uh anyway so um th this is then you start wondering who who were there who was this who were this these people who, who built these structures in egypt Peru, also easter island you've been talking a lot about easter island we have stonehenge we have other sites we might come back to but <clears throat> mm -hmm. do you have any theories about there's a lot of talk of course about uh the very legendary famous uh, lost civilization of Atlantis. And there is one mm -hmm. called Mu or Lemuria. And it's very hazy. I mean, the, the legends and stories are very hazy and, and there are different um, accounts of as to uh, during what period this might've happened. And of course, Plato is the one that the most famous uh, accounter of, of uh, the story about Atlantis. So do you mm -hmm. have any theories yourself about let's say Atlantis if that was a civilization if so was that the one that that was responsible for the these megalithic megalithic structures in for instance Egypt and maybe in other sites well unfortunately there doesn't seem to be any physical evidence for Atlantis which is the biggest problem you know there are so many different theories about where Atlantis was and who the Atlanteans were uh, of course uh, Plato's um, case is, is likely the oldest that's been recorded about that uh, based on his ancestor Solon's work and based on Solon visiting the Egyptians and the high Egyptian priests telling him about these ancient cataclysms that happened. Um, so yeah, unfortunately there's no, there's no real, as far as I can tell, concrete evidence for Atlantis and Lemuria or Mu um, could very well have been, as far as I'm concerned, the Hawaiian Islands, because 13,000 years ago, when the sea level was 400 feet lower than it is today, almost all the Hawaiian Islands would have been connected to one another. So that would have been a relatively large landmass. Um, and aside from that, you know, I, I don't, 
I haven't heard any logical um, ideas about other civilizations that could have existed. Of course, we don't have any of the of the that we know of. We don't have any of the bodies of anything that old um, on public display. Yeah, so that's but, you know the of course yeah. yeah. There there is some recent findings in Siberia, as you know, of course. Uh, the, the Denisovans, I think, I, I believe they're they're called the, the human uh, mm-hmm. uh, group that supposedly lived there. I think thirty to forty thousand years ago, and that has been dated. I mean, in, in the mainstream, uh, they have found some very advanced metal metal work, uh, jewelry, and things like that. Very advanced uh, in those uh, sites there. So, where do the, where do they fit in in, in your in your view? Um, again, I, I guess Andrew Collins is the one who's written more about the Denisovans than anybody else. And, mm-hmm. um, as, yeah, as far as I know, they have found a bracelet that date that's made out of stone that dates back to that time. Look, and it looks like it was made using some kind of advanced technology. But, um, as far as I can tell, they weren't uh, technologically sophisticated people, um, mm-hmm. So that's about as far as I've I, as I've studied them. Yeah. And the same with uh, with the Neanderthal. Of course, the Neanderthal were supposedly, to some degree, as intelligent or more intelligent than us, but they didn't uh, have any advanced technological skills, as far as I can tell. So that's the biggest problem: is that um, you know when people say who did it, it's like. Yeah. Atlantis, you know, Atlantis, of course, is the obvious example that what that people would say, and I'm honestly open to the idea that it was a, it could have been extraterrestrials. You yeah, know, I'm not not I'm not close to the concept. Uh, I don't have any evidence for it, but I think if you simply say it had to have been done by humans, you're closing the door on you know a broad spectrum of possibilities. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's the, the extraterrestrial uh, thing is really fascinating, of course. And uh, Michael Tellinger, of course, is is known to be delving uh, deeply into that. Um, we have these uh, beings uh, that are called now. I forgot forget the name. Uh, yeah, the Anunnaki, of course, the Anunnaki, mm-hmm. which are told about in the Sumerian tablets, uh, for instance. And uh, there is this theory that they might may have come from from uh, from um, yeah from other planets or so uh, at some point and um, interbred. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so th- there's also the Nazca lines in um, Peru. W- where do those fit in? What are they? And what do they show? How old are they, the Nazca lines? Okay, well, I'm actually located about a three-hour drive from Nazca here oh. on the coast. So it's it's just, uh, they're just south of me. And okay. there's a lot of evidence that they were created by two cultures. The first was the Paracas, who existed between about 800 BC and about 100 BC, or maybe even 100 AD. And then the Nazca civilization moved in from the north, and then they took over the construction of the lines and geoglyphs up until about 600 AD, when they their civilization collapsed due to localized climate change. So they were, yeah, they were created. This whole system was created between about 500 BC and 500 AD. Mm, okay, so that's not that old then? No. Okay. Looks cool though, I mean, from, from space, from the air, when you, when you see these lines, it looks very oh, yeah. mystical, the whole thing, mysterious. Very. What's your take on this new, or relatively new, 
finding in Indonesia, Gunung Padang. Uh, it's supposedly the, the largest pyramid in the world, but it doesn't look like a, like an Egyptian pyramid. It looks like looks slightly different. Yeah, from what I've seen of the photographs and some videos, it appears to be a number of uh, basalt, uh, almost like logs that are stacked on top of one another. So again, it doesn't look like it's sophisticated in terms of how it was constructed, but it does look like it's quite massive and is quite ancient, had to have been done by a very coordinated society of some kind. But uh, as far as I can tell, it was a local basalt material that was used to construct that. So the mystery is in its age and who made it, not so much how it was made because yeah. it doesn't look- But it, because the dating has been established to be, it, it's, it's established that it's probably 20,000 years old or something like that? Yeah, I think at least 12. At least 12, okay, yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's interesting in and of itself, even, even though the, the, the structure might not be that impressive. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So now you have been touching on the 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 what happened twelve thousand years ago. You just said that 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 figure. So let's let's uh, segue over to the cataclysm. Then so, <clears throat> the reason why these ancient civilizations, apparently very advanced, such uh, disappeared. So what happened, and how can we know what happened? Well, there's growing evidence that there were a series of cataclysms that happened on the Earth between roughly 13,000 and 12,000 years ago. Um, some say it was solar plasma outbursts from the sun um, that caused the the very rapid melting of the of the ice northern ice cap, causing the raising of sea level by. 400 feet or 100 and something meters in the course of a thousand years. Um, other people speculate that it was a pulse from this, the center of our galaxy of, of lethal energy that was emitted from the black hole in the center of our galaxy. Um, and what about meteors? An asteroid? Yeah. Yeah, and, and or meteors or, or an asteroid. They've recently found in Greenland an asteroid um, evidence that was approximately a mile in diameter and had the, um, the force of 57 or so million Hiroshima bombs hitting. Oh. That, that itself could have caused the end, rapid end of the Ice Age as well. So there are all these theories. The commonality is that all the theories are giving the same timeline of between 12 and 13,000 years that this, this happened. So again, you have Dr. Robert Schock's theory. Um, you have um, physicist Paul Laviolette's theory. So that's, that's the commonality that they all agree that it, it was at the end of what's called the Younger Dryas uh, yeah. time period that, that all of this happened. It, it wasn't you know like a, in a movie, a one day event or something like that. It was probably a series of events that happened. Others speculate that the reason why astronomy began was because these devastating things came from the sky. And so from that time on, there was constant monitoring of, of the heavens to see if this was going to come back. And yeah. that's, that, that's shown in many, many different cultures, including the Chinese, you know, with the great dragons from the sky sort of thing. Yeah. Andrew Collins is, is uh, writing and speaking a lot about this. And is this sure. also what is behind all these legends and myths about uh, giant floods 
Like, I mean, like the story of Noah in the Bible and, and many, many others all over the world. Yeah, exactly. There are at least 200 cultures around the world that talk about the destruction of, of their world by fl a flood of some kind or a series of floods. You know, the one, of course, we know most easily is the one referred to in the Bible. The problem is that none of them give a time, a proper timeline. You know, it's always a statement of long ago this happened. Yeah, yeah. But until, until it can be quantified, um, you know, you know the, the great thing is that many different cultures have talked about this. The, yeah. the concept of their world, whether it was an island or whether it was a continent, uh, went through uh, destruction due to a giant, a massive flood of, or series of floods. Yeah, well, that's uh, compelling in itself that, that there are so many differing, different um, cultures talking about this. Uh, and mm -hmm. so if the, the sea rose, and we, we kind of know that, don't we? I mean, that the sea rose by 100 meters, maybe more, uh, mm -hmm. during a short period of time, then that it would make sense then to look for more megalithic structures and uh, remains from from ancient civilizations on the uh, the shelves, the the sea shelves uh, around the continents, wouldn't it? Exactly, and also in the Mediterranean, probably as well. Yeah, is and that the being Black done? Sea. No, no, not as far as I know. Um, I remember Graham Hancock. He wrote, he a, wrote book a book called, about that. Yeah, called Underworld. Yes, and so so he was he wanted to to dive in the Mediterranean. He wanted to dive off southern India, and he was uh, he was blocked by the governments of those areas from doing that. Obviously, they had something to hide. They, you know, they didn't want certain evidence to show up. And even during the great tsunami that happened in Southeast Asia, whenever that was, eleven or so years ago, supposedly there were fishermen that are, that were out uh, fishing, and when the tsunami was was picking up its uh, its power. As the tide receded, supposedly buildings started to appear. Oh, really? In the shallow water, yeah. And then, then when the then when the tsunami hit, you know, they they were resubmerged. So there's probably a lot of evidence in the Mediterranean, and uh, also areas of southern India, and probably possibly as well in the uh, shallow waters of places like Hawaii that there are ancient structures that do exist that simply are not being uh, allowed to be observed or written or filmed about. Hmm. <laughs> That's really fascinating. I would really love that to be examined. I mean, my God. Didn't Graham Hancock manage to do some diving outside of Bahamas where he actually found structures that looked like they had some kind of pyramid shape? Uh, well, I, a number of, of different... Um, of, of different authors and filmmakers have filmed around what's called Bimini in the in the Bahamas area, yeah. uh, show, showing possible evidence of ancient roads and things things like that. Um, you know, I, I remember as a child watching that on TV. So that, that's when my initial fascination started with all you know mysterious structures, mysterious yeah, yeah. things underwater. But uh, I don't think there's a lot of, um, of really super good evidence that they're not necessarily natural, you know, they could be man-made, they could be natural, okay. but you would, you would be looking at areas under a hundred meters presently underwater for any ancient structures from that time frame. Yeah. Yeah. 
hopefully it'll be done someday. So megalithic structures is one extremely, of course, uh, important piece of evidence in the investigation that you and others are doing about our history. But another mm -hmm. one, one that you have been studying a long, for a long time is these mysterious ancient skulls. So tell us about the elongated skulls that have been found in Paracas, Peru and, and elsewhere also. Okay, well, yeah, I saw my first actually uh, physically elongated skull in a small museum, which is presently closed in, in the little town of Paracas. It was, it's a mummified um, elongated skull. And I come from a, a biological pre-med background. So when I saw this, I was quite astonished because it, it seemed to be beyond the capacity of being able to be um, shaped artificially, you know, as in cradle headboarding or, or any kind of technique like that. It appeared to me to be a natural form. And over the course of time, um, we've been able to study hundreds of these elongated skulls, about 5% of them, which are the oldest ones, appear to be natural in shape whereas all the other ones appear to be cranial deformation or, or head binding. So the oldest ones are the ones that appear to be natural in shape. And uh, the later ones are simply um, these ancient people or beings breeding with normal people. Okay, and um, we know this because of DNA analysis that, that the, the, the natural ones are older. Yeah, well, yeah, from, from carbon, uh, radiocarbon dating and also from DNA analysis as, as well. So what's the difference between, I mean, because that's what the, the mainstream scientists are saying, of course, about this, is that it's, it's all about cranial deformation. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a cultural thing. But there is a difference, isn't there? I mean, a big difference between these that appear natural and, and the ones that are obviously deformated. What, what are the differences? Well, one difference is the, the cranial volume in the oldest ones appears on average to be about 25% larger than normal. So that's not something you could do by changing the shape of it. Um, also, there's a suture line that we have called the sagittal suture coming across this way that does not exist in the older skulls. Um, also, the eye sockets are larger. The foramen magnum, which is where your spinal column enters your skull, is two and a half centimeters back from where it should be. Um, those because are the, of, because of the need to balance this larger... Exactly, head. the skull. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's the logical answer. And, uh, you know, of course, I've had a lot of medical doctors come to look at these skulls from mainly from the United States, but also from Europe. And none of them have been able to explain these differences based on their education. They simply say, I, I don't know what it is I'm looking at. Yeah. Uh, we've also found two fetuses that... Um, in two small museums in Peru and Bolivia, where the body or the where the head is the size of the torso. Wow! So you know, that's anomalous, to say the oh, least. Oh, it is. Yeah, and then there was recently DNA analysis made uh, uh, as to where what where, where these skulls may originate from, uh, uh, which was very interesting. So what, no, what that's true. results from that, from that analysis? Well, it's we've studied tw uh, 20 of the skulls so far, um, and only two, two of the 20 would indicate Native American uh, maternal lineage. 
So that, you know, of course, all of the academics say that these ancient elongated headed people living in Peru were Native Americans, uh, but they've never done DNA analysis. So, you know, they have nothing to back that up. But uh, only two of the 20 were, uh, the maternal DNA was Native American. Two of them, uh, the, the result simply was unknown. Like it, it couldn't, the computer couldn't, uh, when it did a comparison with all known human DNA, it couldn't find a match anywhere. And then the other ones all are related to other elongated skulls that have been found around the area of the Black, Black Sea and Caspian Sea. The Black Sea so and Caspian Sea? Okay. Yeah. So that other side that of the would world. Indicate, right. <clears throat> that would indi indicate uh, migration, obviously. Yeah. I mean, this upends, of course, the the narrative about how America was populated. Exactly. Uh, so, so what's your theory about how how that actually happened? I mean, the, the standard theory is that everybody came from over the Strait of the Bering Strait uh, from Asia into America about 13,000, 14,000 years ago or something like that. And before mm -hmm. that, there was nobody. nobody. But, but this tells a different story. What's your theory? Well, I think one possibility is that they, they migrated from the Black Sea and Caspian Sea area to the coast of Peru uh, due to being invaded by um, non-sympathetic uh, people of some kind, uh, because the, the problem is that in Paracas, they only existed, as far as we can tell, still uh, from between about 800 uh, BC to maybe 100 AD maximum. And that's no timeline for there to be able to be any kind of genetic change, you know, of, of any kind. The ones in the Black Sea and Caspian area that I've seen from photographs are a little bit older or contemporary. So that's why this is another very um, enigmatic problem. Yeah. Is uh, they don't seem to, to have evolved from something else. They suddenly appear and then they disappear. And that's, that's the great enigma. Okay. So then you start thinking maybe they came from somewhere else. And, I mean, going back to the ET. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, there is that possibility. You know, there is that possibility also recently, which I didn't know, Nassim Harriman and his, uh, his team were able to do analysis of the paternal, which is the nuclear DNA, which is the father's DNA, yeah. and of two skulls, which are the last two that we studied, and they were not able to find any match with any, anything in the genetic banks regarding Homo sapiens sapiens. I know. Yeah, I heard. I heard that. I heard him say this, and it's. It's. I mean, I'm. I'm flabbergasted because I think he said something like the the, the match with ordinary Homo sapiens DNA was three to four percent or something like that. The the rate of matching, and 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 a, a Homo sapiens DNA, the Homo sapiens totality of DNA matches with a banana to about to a degree of about forty percent. So this. Yeah, that's. <laughs> means that that these creatures, these beings, were less related to Homo sapiens than a banana is, which, which is quite bizarre. Yeah, quite bizarre. Quite bizarre. Yeah. So where did they come from? That's the big. That's question. the ongoing question. Yeah. Do you think you will find the answer before you before you uh, <laughs> leave this world? 
Um, I hope so. You know, I haven't given up on it. I'm still studying all of this stuff. So um, I'm hoping we're going to get more information. Uh, we can continue to do DNA testing from um, skulls and other material from private collections. So there, there still is openings to, to continue studying this. So what do uh, mainstream academics and scholars say about the, uh, the elongated skulls in, in, in the, the Caspian Sea and Black Sea area? Do they have the same story there that, that this is just de deformation of craniums? Um, well, you either have that or you have articles written about that, you know, that the ones there are, you know, you either get that, which is one extreme view. And the other extreme view is if they simply are aliens or alien human hybrids. Okay. Not necessarily written by academics, but no. um, there's, yeah, there's still very little. I've been able to find very little information about the Black Sea, Caspian Sea ones. I do know of, of locations of ancient cemeteries where a few have been found. I don't know where they're stored. Uh, the opportunity of going on location is very difficult, of course, at this point. But um, I do have there are a number of, of Russian researchers that I've been in contact with who are going to try to look for more information for me about that. Mm, okay. Speaking of going going to the actual location, are you sometimes being uh, counteracted by authorities when you're in the field doing your research? Uh, um, yeah, I, I, was, I would you? say more and more as time. Um, just more and more uh, limitations. Uh, the majority of the elongated skulls that we studied were from the Ica Regional Museum here in Peru, and, and it was all coordinated by their senior archaeologist. So he, um, he allowed the DNA to be tested, but then when I sent him the results, he didn't respond to emails at all because mm -hmm. they didn't match what he wanted. You know, he wanted all the results to say, Native American people, but uh, because of that, I actually went to his office unannounced and, and confronted him with it, and he, he didn't want to talk about the matter. Hmm. So what, what about when you're in Egypt and uh, study these structures? Are, are you stopped sometimes by the authorities? Actually, each, Egypt's completely different. Egypt's actually opening up more. Is it? Um, yeah, more and more locations. I go once a year, and each year that I go, there's always somewhere that I get to to look and film and study that I haven't been allowed to in the past. So oh, that's good. Uh, yeah. So under the Step Pyramid, we know there's a series of tunnels that go on for at least six miles in the bedrock. <clears throat> so that's slowly opening up to, to access. Uh, now we know that the Serapium, which is where the giant boxes are located, that they've actually found, or they've disclosed that there's another room that has more of them. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that's starting to open up more. So Egypt compared to other locations, um, especially Peru and Bolivia are much more um, opening up to investigation, which is, which is good because the other, the other countries are, are becoming very, it's becoming very frustrating in other countries, but Egypt at least is the, the one that um, has a good future to be able to unravel more of its history. We also know that the Sphinx is hollow because I was able to film um, that fact uh, when I was there in October with a camera. Um, you know, so 
the tunnel systems are what really fascinate me about Egypt. And as time goes on, we'll get more and more access to locations that previously were off limits. Hmm. There's a whole world under there. And why would they big build yeah. these long, long, long tunnels and, and these enormous stone boxes that are three times bigger than a human being to, to bury people? I mean, the, it must have been something else. Uh, and, you, and you have theories about that, don't you? I mean, that there was, it wasn't kind of an energy, uh, uh, yeah, energy system or something. Uh, that's what, yeah, that's what we're theorizing, that it's possible that the Great Pyramids were actually um, energy transmitters, um, and then that the obelisks, which are, of course, one piece of solid granite, that they were receivers. So it's like a wireless system in the very, very ancient past that could have existed. Yeah. Um, and the reason for all the tunnels, I, that, you know, um even you know even some of the egyptologists admit that there are, are tunnel systems um zahi hawass who used to be the head of the uh, antiquities department stated that there's one at sakar that goes on for a mile at least a mile and a half now we learned that it's at least six miles of tunnels it could be much much bigger than that so it's all of this all of this secret underground stuff that's slowly being opened up which is you know which is wonderful yeah Incredible. And I've heard you saying that even some of the guides are, are referring to your videos sometimes when they are telling about these things to tourists. Yeah, that seems to be as, yeah, as more as time goes on. I'm very honored by that fact that some of the younger ones are waking up and watching videos that uh, deviate from the standard story. And they're actually starting to educate the public about, you know, about these ideas. Yeah. Has the mainstream science, would you say, moved uh, in in any way in your direction, so to speak, either when it comes to possible lost civilizations, uh, a possible cataclysm that wiped out things, or a possible non-homo sapiens humanoid species parallel to us? Well, with the with the ancient cataclysm, there's increasing um, increasing study by academics of of the fact that these events did exist so that's that's promising um in terms of the megalithic work that most are still insisting that it was all done by uh you know as we started the conversation about either the dynastic egyptians or the inca though they have no evidence for it but the general public are waking up which is what's important yeah and it's easier and, now uh, to spread the information with, yeah Yeah, and with the elongated skulls, it's an ongoing process. So I'm sure I'll be doing future DNA studies, probably with Nassim, because he's the one who financed uh, the latest DNA studies. He, you know, he said there's an unlimited budget. We're going to find out what's going on. But to the two we studied, even though we did take 60 or 70 samples, um, that's not enough um, information yet to make it solid so i'm hoping that we're going to continue to do this as time goes on and uh, you know study more of the elongated skulls yeah okay uh, when it comes to the megalithics thing and the lost civilizations i th i i was under the impression some time ago that the the um, the discovery of gobekli tepe in turkey and the fact that it, the dating is quite irrefutable i mean everybody accepts that it's at least 10,000 years old or so that that would change the that that would help be kind of a catalyst to change the narrative a bit do you do you see that happening that gobekli tepe might be the 
the finding that finally gets these uh, mainstream archaeologists and scientists to maybe hmm, shift their view a little bit? Well, I th yeah, I, I think they're going to have no choice but to start to accept it because the radiocarbon dating that has been done at Gobekli Tepe proves that it's at least 11,000 years old. That's you know twice as old as any known civilization. It had to have been done by a coordinated society and not by a bunch of hunter-gatherers, which is literally what the museum on site says. It says a number of hunter-gatherers came and seasonally would move these 10 to 20 ton uh, you know, limestone blocks into place. Uh, but it was obviously done by a very sophisticated coordinated society um, and possibly was, was buried on purpose. They've only excavated, I think, 3% of Gobekli Tepe so far. It's much, much bigger than, than what, you know, what it is when you go there. But uh, yeah. for some reason, the Tur Turkish government is not eager to do much more in terms of, of digging. I don't know why. Because if the evidence is that it's at least 11,000 years old, then why not just continue? But uh, Gobekli Tepe is quite crude in terms of its construction. So that doesn't help us with the more megalithic sites where you see precise engineering and technology at work. No, um, aside the fact that the, the, the blocks are very heavy, of course. But yeah. they're, they're not as big, perhaps, as, as the ones that build the pyramid in, in Giza. No. No, 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 not nearly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you think, uh, if, you, if you should guess here now, uh, in 10 years, 10 years from now, how does our uh, story, this, how does the story about our ancient origin look? I think there'll be a lot more eyes looking at this because... Um, I'm very thankful in that I've been able to inspire other people to go on location and film, uh, you know, film the same things. Uh, you have a, one channel called Uncharted X, uh, Uncharted X by uh, Ben, who's a, an Australian engineer. So he's, uh, he's, he's become very popular. There's also an even younger guy called Jimmy of a, a station called uh, or channel called Bright Insight. He was on Joe Rogan two days ago, okay. which is you know which is quite profound. He's got 1.2 million subscribers. Yeah, uh, there's a young lady from from England called Johanna James. She went to um, Egypt with Ben about a year ago, so she's got a very good channel. There's another lady from Holland called Kaylee, uh, who's got a channel called History with Kaylee. So I think they'll probably be. Those are the ones I can name off the top of my head that are, are quite re relatively recent. Yeah. So I think in 10 years, there'll probably be a hundred times as many YouTube channels looking at this kind of stuff, yeah. um, which is very, which I'm very happy about. So it won't just be me, uh, you know, the older generation like uh, Graham Hancock and people, I don't think they're doing too much anymore. So I'm, I'm very happy that there are a number of younger people that are taking this on in quite a serious, uh, serious manner, and they're reaching millions of people with uh, with what they're showing. Mm -hmm. And we're also work working together, Jimmy and um, and Ben of Uncharted X were with me in Peru in August. So we're going to be doing other uh, tours and trips together in the future. Uh, probably going to Egypt again, uh, maybe to. 
locations in Southeast Asia, possibly Turkey and other locations. So yeah, the future looks very bright for this. That's great. But it's also going to be a crisis for the education system, don't you think? The whole, I mean, scholarship uh, around these things that we've had for decades and decades. Well, I think as these older academics retire, um, some of the younger generations are more open-minded to this. And they're being influenced not only by their professors, but also by what they see on YouTube. And even better if they go in person and see, you know, if you see this stuff in person, it's much more impressive than watching somebody's YouTube video about it. And yeah, that, yeah. that's how you can more easily convince people that, you know, what they're looking at is not what they were taught, but yeah. it's something much more intriguing. But you need to know what to look for, I think. So that's why it's so helpful with these videos and books that you and others are, are True. conveying. But I mean, that's what I mean, that the people are thinking for themselves much more, I think, uh, and are not mm-hmm. taking for granted what professors and teachers are telling them, which they m- may have done to a larger extent 50 years ago, but that's not the case now. And it's, it's, that's why it's a bit messy in the world, I think, because people are also not listening to their politicians and they're not listening to mm-hmm. their teachers. And so it's, I, I think it's, it's creating a very messy world, but also very interesting where, where things are happening and shifting. And some of the shifts mm-hmm. are probably needed, possibly, I mean, probably needed. So we're, we're in for some, we're in for a ride. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. So Brian, where can people find your work if they want to know more? Uh, I guess my website, which is hiddenincatours.com. That's where the bulk of my work is. Uh, Connections to the books, connections to my YouTube channel, and lots of articles and interviews and things like that are located there. So that's that's like my main center for all of the information relating to me and what I've done and what I plan to do in the future. Okay, Brian Forrester, thank you so much for taking your time to to be a guest on Mind the Shift and keep up the the good work that you're doing out there. Okay, thank you, Anders, pleasure. (laughs) 